Welcome again to the newest members of the Christ Central family. It's just, again, such a delight to see God adding to our numbers. Uh, our ministry theme for this year, church, has been following Jesus. By the grace of God and for the glory of God, we want to be a church that doesn't just believe in Jesus, but, but we love Jesus, we trust Jesus, we worship Jesus, we obey Jesus, and, we, and live our lives in a manner that's worthy of Jesus. In other words, we want to be a church that follows Jesus. And to help us do that, we've been studying the Gospel of Luke, and we've been calling this series Following Jesus Through the Book of Luke. And today, we come to the second to the last sermon in this year-long series. We've been in this book for about nine months now. It's hard to believe, but it's all going to come to an end next Sunday. And today's sermon title is The Road to Emmaus. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 24, which is the last chapter of Luke. Now last week we were in chapter 22, and we talked about how Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on the night before he was put to death. And at our Good Friday service, we looked at Luke chapter 23, and we looked at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then on Easter Sunday, we looked at the first part of uh, Luke chapter 24, where it talked about the resurrection of Jesus. Today, we're going to pick up at verse 13 in chapter 24, and we're going to read about what happened on that Easter Sunday afternoon. You see, earlier that morning, some women went to the tomb. They found the tomb open and empty, and the body of Jesus was not there. And to their surprise, there were two angels at the tomb who told them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And then the women went and told the 11 other apostles and the other disciples what the angel told them, that Jesus was risen and alive, but nobody believed them, including the two disciples that we're going to meet in a minute. But Peter ran to the tomb to check it out, and he found the tomb empty just as the women said, and he went home marveling and wondering about all that happened. What we're going to read now is what happened that very afternoon, just a few hours later. So, people of God, this is the word of God. Would you please give it your careful attention? That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together... Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, uh, said, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he uh, was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, 
oh foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he broke the bread and blessed and broke it. Uh, He took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose at that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on, on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Here's a sermon outline for today. First, the encounter. Second, the education. And third, the excitement. First, the encounter. This encounter with Jesus took place toward the late afternoon or early evening of that Sunday when Jesus was raised from the dead. Verse 13 tells us that it was still that very day, the very day when the women earlier went to the tomb and found the tomb empty. So this was late Sunday afternoon, and two disciples of Jesus were walking to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, I did a quick Google search. To walk seven miles at a relaxed pace takes about two hours and 20 minutes. At a normal pace, it takes about one hour and 45 minutes. So it was probably about a two-hour walk. And from verse 29, we know that by the time they got to Emmaus, it was almost evening and time for dinner. Now, Luke tells us that one of the disciples was named Cleopas, but he doesn't tell us the name of the other. And in verse 17, Luke tells us that they were sad. They were sad because all their hopes and expectations were dashed. See, they had hoped that Jesus would be the one who would redeem Israel. They had hoped that Jesus would be the one who would deliver them from their oppressors, the Romans. But now Jesus was dead, and their hope of Jesus delivering them from the Romans was dead as well. Now at this point, they believed that Jesus was a prophet who was mighty in word and deed. They believed, or they saw, Jesus being condemned and crucified. But at this point, they did not yet believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Even though they heard the report from the women... How they went to the tomb, and it was empty, and how angels had told them that Jesus was risen and alive, but they didn't believe the women, and so they were sad. Christ Central family, do you realize that without the resurrection, there is no gospel? The gospel is not merely Jesus died for me. That's only the first half of the gospel. The whole gospel is Jesus died for me and he was raised for my justification. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul said this, that if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. Bible scholar Michael Ramsey said this, 
The gospel without the resurrection is not merely a gospel without its final chapter. It's not a gospel at all. As these two disciples were walking and talking, Jesus came up to them and asked, Hey, what are you guys talking about? They were having an encounter with Jesus, but they didn't know it because God had prevented them from recognizing that it was Jesus. And in verse 18, Cleopas asked in disbelief, Are you the only one who doesn't know what happened in Jerusalem these past days? What hole did you crawl out of? Talk about irony, right? Cleopas thought he was talking to a clueless visitor when in reality he was talking to the one person who knew better than anyone else what happened these past few days in Jerusalem. You see, Cleophas was talking to Jesus, the one who was arrested, the one who was falsely accused, the one who was unjustly condemned, the one who was mocked and tortured, the one who was put to death on a cross and then put into a tomb. You see, Jesus knew everything. He knew better than anyone. And yet, watch what Jesus does. He graciously asked, what things? What happened here? Tell me all about it. And then Jesus patiently listened to Cleopas tell him what happened to him as if he didn't know. Friends, we can't miss the patience and the compassion of Jesus here. As he listened to his disappointed and heartbroken disciples as they poured out their hearts to him, Jesus knew everything, and yet he patiently and compassionately listened to them. You know, I think sometimes in our pain and grief and confusion, we ask Jesus something similar, don't we? Jesus, are you the only one who doesn't know what's going on in my life? Are you the only one who doesn't know are the hardships and trials and heartbreaks that I'm going through? And that's ironic too, isn't it? Because Jesus could say, oh, I don't know. Actually, I know everything because I'm the one that ordained everything that you're going through right now and that you're complaining about. I'm the one who sovereignly ordained all of these things in your life for your good, according to my good, wise, and loving plan for your life. Jesus could have said that, or he could say that to us, and yet Jesus doesn't say that, even though he could. Instead, what does he say? What things? Tell me what's going on in your life. Let me know. And Jesus listens to us patiently and compassionately as we lament and complain and pour out our hearts to him. And Jesus shows us the same kindness as we walk down our roads of sadness as he showed that same kindness to these two disciples on their sad road to Emmaus. Now, the other day at our monthly strategy meeting, as a staff, Pastor Sam asked our staff this very insightful question. He asked, when do you feel truly heard? Now, everyone shared some really thoughtful and amazing answers, but I can't remember any of them because I wasn't listening, right? Just kidding. I remember one or two answers. But after that discussion, it made me think, who truly hears me? My wife? Maybe, sometimes. And then I was reminded of Jesus. Jesus is the only one who truly and always hears me, 
even when I don't have the words to articulate all that I'm thinking and feeling, when I'm a jumbled up mess of contradictions on the inside. Friends, when we are sad and heartbroken, Jesus listens to us. No one listens to us better than Jesus. No one hears us more truly than Jesus. Patiently and compassionately, Jesus listens to us. When we tell him all the things that make us sad, even though he already knows because he's the one that ordained all the things in our lives that make us sad. And yet he listens to us as we pour out our hearts to him. Jesus really is the best listener that we all have. So these two disciples had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Next, let's look at the education that these two disciples received from Jesus on this road. Now, after Cleopas was done explaining to Jesus why they were so sad, Jesus gave them a much-needed education. In verse 25, Jesus lovingly said, O foolish ones and slow, to and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, until now, these disciples had no room in their theology for a suffering Messiah. They thought that Jesus' suffering and his death actually proved that he was not the Messiah. But the truth is, Jesus' suffering and death actually proved that he was indeed the promised Messiah. So for about two hours, for the remainder of their walk to Emmaus, Jesus explained how the Old Testament scriptures spoke about him. And in particular, how he would have to suffer and then enter into his glory. Jesus preached literally the best Christ-centered sermon in the history of the world. And catch this, only two people got to listen to it. I think there's an important lesson here for us pastors and for those of us who are called to teach the Bible. We must never despise small gatherings, as if it's only worth our time to preach and teach the Bible when there's a large group of people who are there to listen to us. Jesus took two hours to preach to a group of two people. Jesus did not despise small gatherings, and neither must we. Whether the gathering to whom we're preaching or teaching is 2,000 people or two people, let us do it faithfully out of love for Christ and out of love for the people to whom we get to preach and teach Christ to. Amen? That's a word for all of you who are called to teach the Bible in some way. And in this educational conversation on the road to Emmaus, Jesus gave us the golden key, as it were, to unlock the true meaning of the Old Testament. According to Jesus, the whole Old Testament, from the law of Moses to the prophets to the Psalms, they all find their true and an ultimate purpose and meaning in relation to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We cannot fully and properly understand anything from Genesis to Malachi unless we see its connection to Christ. According to Jesus, the Old Testament prefigured, anticipated, and announced the salvation that he would accomplish for his people through his death and resurrection. You see, the whole Bible, both the New Testament and the Old Testament, is all about Jesus. Now, it's obvious 
How the New Testament is all about Jesus, right? Well, the Gospels tell us who Jesus is and, and what he did and the climaxes with his death and resurrection. And the New Testament epistles really explain the significance, the meaning, and the implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we know that the New Testament is all about Jesus. But how is the Old Testament all about Jesus when the name Jesus doesn't even appear in the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament... Uh, points to Jesus, shows us Jesus in three primary ways. First, the Old Testament points to Jesus through promises. You see, in the Old Testament, there are so many promises of a coming Savior and Redeemer who will one day restore this broken world. For example, in Genesis 3.15, God said to the servant, Serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, that was a veiled promise of a Messiah who would be the seed of the woman and who would crush the head of the serpent while his own heel would be bruised. And we know that happened on the cross. Second, the Old Testament also points to Christ through prophecies. There are many prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the coming of the Messiah. For example, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the prophet Isaiah gave this prophecy. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and, shall, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And that was a prophecy of how God would one day be with his people and that prophecy was fulfilled when God came in Jesus Christ into our world so that he could be God with us. And third, the Old Testament points to Christ through types and shadows. Types and shadows are people, events, things, and places that prefigure and foreshadow and anticipate the person, work, and kingdom of Jesus Christ. For example, David was a person who served as a type of Christ. You see, when David defeated the enemy of his people, when he defeated Goliath, that was a type of Christ, who, as the true David, would defeat the ultimate enemies of his people, which is sin, death, and hell. And so when we see that battle between David and Goliath, that's really meant to foreshadow and anticipate the cosmic battle between the true David and the true Goliath of God's people, sin, death, and hell. Now, according to Jesus, every book in the Old Testament points to him. From Genesis to Malachi, Jesus is there. And I know I, I did this a few years ago, but I want to do it again. We do a quick survey of how Jesus is in every book of the Old Testament. Listen to this. Sit back and enjoy. In Genesis, Jesus is the seed of the woman that bruised the head of the serpent. In Exodus, Jesus is the true Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us. In Leviticus, Jesus is the true scapegoat who bore our sins and took it far away. In Numbers, Jesus is the one who would be lifted up on a pole so that everyone who looks and believes would be healed just like the bronze serpent. In Deuteronomy, Jesus is a prophet like Moses that God would raise up. In Joshua, Jesus is the captain of the Lord's army. In Judges, Jesus is the judge and the lawgiver. In Ruth, Jesus is the kinsman redeemer. 
And in First and Second Samuel, Jesus is the prophet of the Lord. In First and Second Kings, Jesus is the true and reigning king. In First and Second Chronicles, Jesus is the son of David whose kingdom would have no end. In Ezra, Jesus is the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, Jesus is the rebuilder of the walls. In Esther, Jesus is the one who is willing to perish so that his people might live. In Job, Jesus is the living redeemer who stands upon the earth. In Psalms, Jesus is our shepherd and our song. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Jesus is the wisdom of God. In in the Song of Solomon, Jesus is our lover and our bridegroom. In Isaiah, Jesus is the suffering servant. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, Jesus is the weeping prophet. And in Ezekiel, Jesus is the true shepherd. In Daniel, Jesus is the Son of Man who will come again in the clouds of heaven. In Hosea, Jesus is the true bridegroom who loves and redeems his unfaithful bride. In Joel, Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In Amos, Jesus is the burden bearer. In In Obadiah, Jesus is the mighty Savior. And in Jonah, Jesus is the true prophet who loves his enemies and longs for their repentance. In Micah, Jesus is the messenger with beautiful feet. In Nahum, Jesus is the avenger of God's people. In Habakkuk, Jesus is the great evangelist who cries out for revival. In Zephaniah, Jesus is the restorer of the remnant. In Haggai, Jesus is the cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, Jesus is the pure son. And in Malachi, Jesus is the son of righteousness. As you can see, Jesus really is in every book of the Old Testament. From Genesis to Malachi, Jesus is there, and the Old Testament points us to Jesus. But we have to pause here and ask, but why is that so important? Yes, it's true. Jesus said it's true, so that's important. But why is it so important to us that the Old Testament points us to Christ? It's because... What we need from God is a Christ who can save and redeem us. If God just gave us his law, then we would all be doomed because none of us can ever keep the law of God perfectly. The law only exposes us as sinners and condemns us for our sins. But thank God that he did not just give us his law, but he also gave us his son to be our Savior and our Redeemer, to be the one who saves us from the condemnation of the law by being condemned for us in our place. You see, friends, the truth is all of us are hopeless and repeat offending sinners. Every one of us have returned to sins that we swore that we'd never return to. But we all have. You know it, I know it, time and time again. Despite our best efforts and resolutions, we've all gone back to our sins the way a dog returns to its vomit. And what we deserve is God's condemnation and holy wrath. But what we need is God's mercy, grace, and love. And God gave us mercy, grace, and love when he gave us his son, Jesus not only to save us from sin, death, and hell through his death and resurrection, but also to bring us into his family so that we might become beloved sons and daughters of God, so that we might become co-heirs with Christ of the kingdom of heaven itself. You see, as your pastor, whenever I preach to you, my most basic and most fundamental job is to show you Christ. 
And the reason for that is because what you and I need most is Jesus. So no matter where I start in the Bible, no matter what text I start with, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, my job is to show you Jesus and to show you what he has done for your salvation through his death and resurrection. And then to exhort you to live as a redeemed and beloved child of God, to live in a manner that is in line and in keeping with the truth of the gospel. That's my job as your pastor. And hopefully whenever anyone enters into this pulpit, no matter where they begin in the Bible, you will always hear Christ and him crucified for you and risen for you because he and he alone is our only hope. So the two disciples had an encounter with Jesus on the, on the road to Emmaus, and they also got an education from Jesus on that road. Lastly, let's look at the excitement. When they got to Emmaus, it was evening. It was time for dinner. So they begged Jesus to stay with them and to have dinner with them. And Jesus did. And as Jesus took the bread, blessed the bread, blessed the bread, and broke the bread, they recognized Jesus in that because God had finally allowed them to recognize that it was Jesus all along. And then Jesus vanished from their sight. And in their great excitement, they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? And then they got up that very hour and went straight back to Jerusalem. Think about this. Their journey to Jerusalem couldn't have been any more different than their journey from Jerusalem. You see, when they left Jerusalem, they were sad and dejected because they thought that Jesus was still dead. But when they went back to Jerusalem, they were excited and full of joy because they knew that Jesus was risen and alive. They had talked with Jesus, they walked with Jesus, and they even began to have dinner with Jesus. Meeting the risen and living Jesus changed everything. They went from sadness to joy, unspeakable. It was the same road, but two completely different trips. And as soon as the disciples got to Jerusalem, they met up with the other 11 apostles and the other disciples who were there. And they were already talking amongst themselves how Jesus was risen from the dead and how Jesus had appeared to Peter. And then they shared their account, how they met Jesus on the road and how they recognized Jesus in the breaking of the bread. You know, can you just imagine? Imagine being in that room. Imagine the sense of excitement, wonder, and joy that must have been felt by everyone in that room as everyone was sharing their reports and their testimonies of having seen Jesus alive. And then the two disciples from Emmaus told the other disciples the two things that happened in verse 35. First, they told them what happened on the road to Emmaus. They told them about how Jesus came to them, spoke to them, and how Jesus said that the whole Old Testament, all the scriptures, were really about him. And then they, secondly, they told them about how they recognized Jesus in the breaking of the bread. And ever since then, my friends, this is how disciples of Jesus encounter and experience the risen Jesus. In the preaching of Christ from the word and in the Lord's Supper. Christ Central Family, this is how we encounter and experience the risen and living Lord Jesus today. We encounter Jesus as we hear him preach to us, proclaim to us from his word, and our, heart, and our hearts burn within us whenever we hear Christ and his steadfast love to us proclaimed. 
And we also experience the presence of the risen and living Jesus in the breaking of the bread in the Lord's Supper. You see, at the Lord's Supper, we don't just remember what Jesus did for us, though we certainly do that. But more importantly, we experience real spiritual communion with the one who loved us and gave his life for us. You see, ye remember dead people, but you experience living people, and Jesus is alive. Amen. And not only that, we get to look forward to that coming table, to that heavenly banqueting table, where we will eat and drink with Christ, our risen Savior, for all eternity, and his banner over us will be love. Friends, this is why we must regularly listen to the preaching of God's word. We must regularly participate in the Lord's Supper because that is how we encounter and experience Jesus on this side of eternity by faith until we go to be with him in heaven because those are the primary, what theologians call the primary means of grace, the ways in which we get to experience and encounter the risen Jesus and receive his mercy, grace, and love. So what, let me wrap this up real quick. What's the takeaway for today? As you read your Bibles, as you study your Bibles uh, with your friends, look for Jesus, especially if you're in the Old Testament, because Jesus is there in the Old Testament. He is promised, prophesied, and previewed through types and shadows. Now, to show you how Jesus is prefigured and present in the Old Testament, our summer series this year will be called Christ in the Old Testament. During the summer, starting on June 20th, for 10 weeks, the pastors of our church will preach from different passages in the Old Testament, and we will show you how they prefigure and point us to Jesus. Now, I'm so excited about this summer series because I want you to see that Christ is really there in the Old Testament, and once you see him, and his beauty and his love for you, that your hearts would get melted and that you would love him with all of your hearts. And here's the second takeaway. Expect suffering in this life. You see, the pattern of Jesus, or the, or the pattern of the life of Jesus, is also going to be the pattern for our lives as well. As followers of Jesus, we too will experience a suffering to glory pattern. Our lives in this world will be marked by suffering. Not only suffering, but there will be suffering. And sometimes lots of suffering. So expect hardships and heartbreaks. Expect losses and disappointments and broken dreams. Expect to suffer injustices, both great and small. Expect sickness and pain. Expect people that you love to pass away. Expect to pass away yourself one day. You see, in this broken world and in our broken bodies and in our broken souls, we will all suffer, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, socially, relationally, or spiritually. We will all experience suffering in this life. Don't naively or foolishly think that somehow you can avoid suffering in your life because you can't. But don't lose heart or hope as you suffer. Instead, as you suffer, in the midst of your suffering, expect glory. Just as Jesus entered into glory after he suffered, so we all will enter into glory after we suffer. So Christ Central family, by faith, 
Consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us when Christ comes again. But until that day, believe this. Jesus is with you. He is for you. And he will bring you safely home. You'll be safely brought home to heaven, not because you were so faithful to Jesus, but because Jesus was and is and always will be so faithful to you. It is by his faithfulness that you will be safely brought home. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that every page in your word directs our eyes to your son, Jesus, who is our redeemer, our savior, our Lord, our husband, our true bridegroom, the one who loved us so much that he gave himself for us. And I pray that we as a church, the more we see Christ in the pages of scripture, would you by your spirit enable us to, to love him more, to trust him more, to obey him more, and to follow him more joyfully. Oh God, for the glory of Christ, would you make us a church that truly follows Jesus. Amen. Thank you.